You're listening to SequelCast 2 and Friends, a proud part of the Greenlit Podcast Network. They're coming for you. Look, there comes one of them now. He'll hear you. Here he comes now. I'm getting out of here. After the credits roll, there's always more to tell. Especially when the video sales are doing really well. From shock treatment to Jason X to Police Academy 6. This is Sequel Cast. And they are unsurpassed at following a franchise until the better end. This is Sequel Cast. And your hosts have asked that I inform you that the show will now begin. Hello, and welcome to Sequel Cast 2, a podcast looking at movies in a franchise, one film at a time. I'm your host, Matt Bradley Shergi. And we will be talking about the original 1968 Night of the Living Dead, directed by George A. Romero, written by John Russo and George A. Romero. Uh, with me. Yeah, once you light them, they go up pretty fast. And Alex. They're coming to get you, Barbara. Yes, um, This, uh, as this uh, poster that's in Wikipedia says, they keep coming back for with a bloodthirsty lust for human flesh. Pits the dead against the living in a struggle for the survival. They won't stay dead. Yeah. Night of the Living Dead. It Zombies were around before then, but this really kind of reintroduced them into the pop culture. Um, because of the, the bad deal um, George A. Romero signed, at the time the movie is basically public domain more or less. The, the well, rights are so muddled. It wasn't just the deal. the the distributor The distributor changed, and when they changed the title card of the movie, they didn't update its copyright stat. They didn't update its copyright oh. status on the new title card. And since it was distributed without copyright at the time, that meant it fell into the public domain. Yeah, it had three titles. It um, was originally called Night of the Flesh Eaters. And mm-hmm. then George Romero got a cease and desist letter, and he was like, well, it's my first movie. I don't want to get sued. From so who? He, who? Who owned Flesh Eater? I know, exactly. But, you know, young filmmaker, what have you. And then he's like, well, let's choose a name no one's going to use. So he went with Night of Anubis. And there's um, uh, that was the title for a, sh- a short period. And then the distributor changed it to Night of the Living Dead because it, it sounded good. Um, and then, yeah, like you said, it just kind of fell into the public domain, and that's, like, the best and worst thing that can happen to a movie. <laughs> I mean, people see it. <laughs> More right. people see it that way, right? I mean, it's just kind of the same with, like, video piracy in that way. Um, right. And it was, like, one of those questions where Night of the Living Dead was the easiest film to find, but a good version of it was the hardest thing to find. You know, you could find it at the supermarket, you find it at your video store, you could find it under your shoe. Um, but, you know, it might be the crappy colorized version, it just might be a bad scan, it might be a crappy negative... Um, but of course, some people did stuff with it. There's that. There's that. Night of the Living Dead reanimated, where they had different animators reanimate the move, do animated versions of the scenes in like one minute chunks or five minute chunks. Uh, there was also uh, I don't know if y'all remember Stick Figure Theater. One of the uh, no. from Liquid Television. One of the longest segments was a Night of the Living Dead segment, where they pretty much just reproduced the whole climax of the movie. But and the uh, and the uh, the truck scene, but just using stick figures animated on a sheet of yellow line paper was really awesome. Yeah, I mean, 1968, it's hard to believe it's a movie that is. Well, like 60 years old, maybe I'm terrible at math, something um, like that. 
pretty yeah. close to it. Uh, but so with the Night of the Living Dead, I mean, the first time I saw it was was actually fairly late, considering I'm a horror movie fan. I just never got around to it. It was uh, when I started dating my wife, my wife uh, in 2008, Halloween time. She has, you know, she doesn't like horror films, but she'll watch one in October. And right. she had a copy of this, and it looks like a copy like you bought at a gas station with right. the cheapest packaging I've ever seen. The quality was awful, which kind of added to it. And uh, to watch it for this show, the one that I put on the the server, um, it is the it's just a DVD, not the Criterion. I'm sure that one looks great, but this is the DVD uh, okay. Millennium Edition that comes from a much better transfer, hmm. and uh, it looks like ten times better than the the old like shitty one. Um, the movie is also full frame, but that's the aspect ratio in which it was filmed. Yeah, the so that's four that's by worth three, noting. Yeah. Four by three, Academy ratio. Yes, <laughs> as they say. Uh, Thrasher, when is the first time you saw this picture? I I am not entirely sure because I'd been seeing clips of it all my life, but it I think it yeah, would yeah. have been sometime in the 90s when I was really into late night horror movies mm. uh, but I have seen many versions of this movie in many different cuts I'm even I'm even a fan of the 1990 remake um so uh, and so I actually I made a point to watch a new version of this film I had not seen before before mm. doing this episode since I've seen so many different cuts of it sure um which, which version of it uh, it was a more recent colorized version I- Really? You want to colorized? Okay. Uh, well, it's, it's one that I knew I hadn't seen. I had seen a previous okay. colorized version. I, I will I will say this. Like, like a lot of colorization, it doesn't really help the movie, except when there are shots of just the zombies wandering around. Mm. It makes them look so much more unnatural, especially with the weird grayish-green skin tone they gave them. Oh, That's they the one... greenish skin tone? Well, yeah, like slightly greenish, not like okay. bright green, yeah. like in the the uh, Carnival of Souls uh, colorized version that's out there. Um, so I, so you know, a worthy attempt, I think. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like sounds like kind of a tasteful version on uh, film Twitter. Oh, sometime last year, there was things going around where I think it's a thread on Reddit where people are making uh, like colorized clips of of black and white films, and it's a good sort of exercise to learn about compositing and. Uh, you know, the, the the younger film fans were going crazy over the color stuff and said, like, oh, this looks so cool. I like this so much better than black and white. I mean, I, I think, in my opinion, I like I think black and white looks better than color. I think it results in a sharper oh, yeah. image. I think it, it makes people look prettier um, because it removes blemishes on your skin. Uh, I'm not a vain person, but I just I just love that classic look. And it adds a lot to this film. I mean, I, I don't, they didn't film this in black and white, I don't think, because they wanted to. It was just a financial yeah, reason, no, you... right? You know, up until the 80s, like, not even the, up until, like, the 2000s, like, if you made a movie in black and white, it's because you were on a shoestring budget and couldn't afford color film stock, because it was so much more expensive. Um, so, yeah. Alex, when is the first time you saw the show? Uh, first time was actually, I remember we visited some family friends in Palmer, Mass, and it was kind of like, like, okay, get the kids out of the house, we're going to watch, like, it's grown yeah. up time. And I think they were just going to, like, you know, roll a bone and watch some movies. And um, I remember I snuck back in, and it was right when Johnny gets thrown against the headstone. Ooh. I remember my dad going, like, oh, there goes Johnny. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I was like, this looks great. It was very evocative seeing this guy, big dude, throwing this, you know, grown man mm. around. So I always wondered what that was. And then I tracked it down later on at the local video store, and they actually had a good copy of it. 
and I was like kind of known for renting mm. it over and over and over because <laughs> it was oh, okay. it was decent and it was a it was a great flick. So Video Paradise, which is sadly no longer with us. So so this was the day in in uh, videotapes, I assume, right? Yeah, yeah, VHS, yeah. So so did you have a setup at home where you had two VHS decks and you would just make bootlegs of whatever oh, you rented? Yeah, yeah. yeah I, first I had to borrow one from my aunt next door and then bring it over. She's like, what are you doing? I'm like, oh, you don't understand. This is this is cool stuff, you know? This is man stuff. No, my, yeah, yeah, exactly. My, my, uh, <laughs> my grandma had one of the first VCRs out there that lasted for decades. And oh, yeah. the, the old VCRs had all these deluxe features. It had... So this was a dual deck VCR, and it had a button that said copy. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> really cool. I'm sure they uh, discontinued those pretty quickly. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, well, I mean, when you know, home video came out, the Hollywood was filing lawsuits against all these video companies, saying oh, it yeah. destroyed the business and it, it ended it up the being same a thing with revenue. You mean audio cassettes, or we're talking? Yeah, about... the same thing happened with oh, audio really? cassettes. Yeah, the recording that. industry. Okay got into a legal kerfuffle with the manufacturers of audio cassettes. Oh, because of the recording feature. Eh, interesting. Um, but yeah, Night of the Living Dead, this is the first uh, feature by George A. Romero, and like a lot of other people from uh, up-and-comers in Pittsburgh, he got a lot of early experience working uh, on the crew, on the uh, working tech on Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Um, another famous uh, celebrity that did that was michael keaton but there, there's all all kinds of people that work because because mr rogers neighborhood is filmed in pittsburgh it was nationally syndicated i think at that time and was used local crew was, was you know non-union uh but had a lot of stoners in the crew allegedly i don't think mr <laughs> rogers took but but there you go. I think that's a weird bit. I was watching a bit uh, for research this. One of the many Night of the Living Dead documentaries, uh, feature documentaries. There's probably half a dozen of them, but this was a, a more recent one. And it showed a clip of uh, a segment George A. Romero directed in which Mr. Rogers gets like a tonsillectomy. And uh, Romero said it's, it's easiest, easily the creepiest thing I've ever filmed. <laughs> <laughs> that's fair. <laughs> yeah, there's... um. It's um it's interesting because um this is you know it's 1968 and this is when you have things like you know like the Wild Bunch and you know like Easy Riders coming up and all this other stuff and it's funny because this movie has the same like kind of revolutionary potent like you know revolutionary aspects to it but it's not always associated with these you know um with the with like the new Hollywood movement and the American New Wave when it's like I in my opinion just as vital. You know, not just a horror cinema, but just a, like independent cinema as a whole. Well, I think that's because that's because it it came from outside the Hollywood system. Oh, These yeah. were all local people from Philadelphia coming together to make a movie. It's 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 a story kind of similar to uh, to uh, Evil Dead. You know, this is people from right. outside the Hollywood yeah. system making a making a great important movie, and who will then later become staples of uh, of filmmaking. Exactly. And the way they did fundraising for Night of the Living Dead compared to, to Evil Dead, uh, to go into quick tangent, which we never do here at Sequel Cast 2, never. listen to old episodes at SequelCast2.com. Uh, we, um, for Night of the Living Dead, George Romero and, and some of the producers and some of his friends each pitched in like 600 bucks, and I think they had a budget of maybe like $6,000 and just started shooting. For Evil Dead, uh, to get financing, they shot a short scene kind of like a fake trailer or something with Bruce Campbell 
And then Sam Raimi dressed up in his trademark business suits and went to every doctor and lawyer in town yeah. and, and family members, right, and got money uh, that way. That's awesome. Yeah. So, it, and even then, I think it took them two-ish years. Oh, it took to years and years. Yeah. yeah, certainly. Um, well, Night of the Living Dead was a more, you know, normal film shoot as far as that stuff goes. Uh, but yeah, I mean, the beginning of Night of the Living Dead is iconic. We were uh, making fun of it in <laughs> in the beginning. But uh, it, it's much like a James Bond picture. It, it starts with kind of a, a self-contained sequence that usually has something to do, you know, it has something to do with the main plot. And uh, it's a good way to get you into the world. It's a good bit of world building. Well, and what I like, too, is that, um, you know, there's always, like, a debate in zombie movies, like, fast zombies or slow zombies, and people, you know, people would say that, like, Night of the Living Dead is a, is a slow zombie movie, but then that first of the cemetery zombie, he's not really, uh, this old boy ain't slow, man, like, he's, you know, he's going after her, and you really do feel that sense of urgency when he's, you know, clanking the wind, the smashing the rock into the window and stuff like that, like, it's, it's a freaky scene. It's effectively a freaky scene, you know. Um, well, it would also. Think... Oh no! Go go right ahead. Um, no, I was pretty much done there. Well, it also could it could function as its own self-contained little story because it has a beginning, a middle, and an end. Characters are revealed, and the other thing I I got to say about this movie, and this just this speaks to how little imagination so many of its imitators had. Mm -hmm. These zombies are not slow. These zombies are not weak. These zombies are not dumb. They use tools. Right. When other movies have zombies that run or use tools or anything like that, they make such a goddamn big deal of it. I oh, remember yeah. when I was in college and people were like, the remake mm. of Not a Living Dead, holy shit, the zombies run! Okay, well, first, <laughs> zombies were running in Return of the Living Dead. Second, yeah. They didn't shamble in the first movie either. <laughs> they right. could catch up to you pretty easily. Well, you said remake of Night of the Living Dead. I think you're referring to the remake of Dawn of the Dead by Zack Snyder. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, Dawn of the Dead. That's the one. Yeah. Oh, and like, um, by James Gunn. What I love, too, is that right. yeah. you get the first scene, which is kind of like its own little narrative. And that's, you know, that's Barbara's story of, you know, her first encounter with the living dead and her journey to the house. And what's so cool is that all of the other subsequent people, they all have their story. And then, like, you know, you wonder how, like, um, how Harry and Helen got there. And then, like, when um, when Dwayne tells his story about, like, the getting chased by the, the, the oil, the, tri the gas truck. And like he said there's, like, 15, 20 of them. And just him telling that story is it shows you what a great actor he is. And also it really paints a very vivid mental picture of it. And like you said, so many, you know, imitators... Uh, of less, you know, talented imitators, you know, would probably have the resources and budget to film a scene like that with a giant gas truck going by and 60, 40 zombies running around. But here it's so much more potent because you're getting a great performance delivering this great story. Well, they've all had their own first act, just like Barbara, but they all converge right. on the second act and share <laughs> the second act together. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and when all these characters start popping up in the house and the way the dialogue is kind of sparse and, and kind of uh i wouldn't say it's filmed cinema verite exactly but the, the acting is certainly grounded uh I, I was it did make me think has night of the living dead ever been done as a stage play oh it has to have been this would be I, I think so yeah 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 because yeah. i mean it's the classic low budget thing where you have one or two locations in this it's really just you know three locations you have the cemetery 
you have the exterior of the farmhouse and the interior of the farmhouse. Uh, and I mean, when they filmed this, R- Romero and his crew and cast like all slept in the farmhouse. Like it was pretty grody, <laughs> grody stuff. Uh, but they, they were all troopers and they all did it right. So budget of one hundred fourteen thousand. That's a bit more than I thought. Um, but yeah, even even so, that's that's still uh, that's, that's still, still cheap for the time. Yeah. And you know, with the budget of thirty million, I think it was one of the most profitable movies uh with the ratio of budget for box office until maybe like Blair Witch Project or some of those things later on. Yeah. Well it like it earned back something along the order of like two hundred and fifty times its budget. Right. Um, and I think George Romero saw very little of that because I, I don't think he saw any of that, which is yeah. why they did the color three D remake oh, directed okay. by Tom Savini so some of the guys could get some money. Wow. Uh, yeah. And uh, speaking of though, you know, I've had some people ask me are we going to do the remakes in this cycle of films we cover? And I'm saying no. At a later time, yeah. we could do the remake trilogy or the original stuff. But um, we're, we're just focusing episode. on the George A. Romero. I don't I don't have to say the fucking A every time. That's stupid. The <laughs> Romero originals. Uh, on Twitter, I sent out a poll that's asking people, what's your favorite Romero Living Dead film of the first trilogy of Night, Dawn, and Day of the Dead? And guess what people picked? Dawn? I go with Dawn, yeah. Yes. All three people that voted, three, I meant three million people that voted, <laughs> voted for Dawn. Interesting. Ooh. I think Dawn's my most watched, which might segue mm-hmm. into favorite, but I think this is the strongest of the of the lot. It is, it is the one I hear talked about the most, certainly. Uh, Great. I, oh, it's something something that occurred to me. So, like, uh, there's I the the Simpsons DVD commentaries. The, the Simpsons infamously did a Treehouse of Horror that was a parody of both uh, Not of the Living Dead and Evil Dead, where it's it's the Simpsons dealing with zombies all over Springfield. And in the audio commentary for that, they all start talking about Night of the Living Dead. And Matt Groening talks about how he saw it like when it was first released. He's mm. like, oh, it's a great movie. It's not scary at all. And I kind of agree with him. Like, at no point in any time that I've seen this movie have I been scared. That being said, I always feel tension. Yes. Yes. I feel yeah. so much tension. And it's emanating from the, I think, the claustrophobia of it. And also, I think they do a really good job of projecting that this is, you know, this is a, this is a pandemic. And you get this feeling that, like, okay, maybe these, like, you know, maybe the police and National Guard might have a grasp on it. But I love, like, the that there's such a contextual remove from, from zombie lore in this movie. Because they call them ghouls and they call them, mm-hmm. the, the newscasters call, say, call, like, there's mass murderings all over the country. You know, no one's saying, like, the dead is getting up from the grave and eating, you know, there's no voodoo curse. It's a like, it's like a Venus satellite or something like that might be the cause. Well, well even then, there's, there's two things about that I like, is that, is that one, like, we, we keep hearing radio reports and sometimes seeing TV reports about what's going on in the wider world. Yeah. And one thing I like about those is they're all very matter-of-fact. They are, like, it's all, like, newscast reporters and public servants who are overwhelmed doing the best they can in this evolving emergency situation. But two, even when they're talking about how like a, a probe from Venus came back early and was destroyed before it got too close to earth and that it's, and that there's weird radiation that might have nothing to do with this. They could just be grasping at straws and that's the only unusual thing they can find. Yeah, and, and the other thing I like is, well, let's suppose it is radiation from space. That doesn't affect any of the people in this movie. Right. <laughs> 
Yeah, that's basically it's like a, just a little reference there. Like I sometimes forget about it when I rewatch. I'm like, oh yeah, the space probe thing might have something to do with it. But then again, it might have nothing to do with it. But I also love that the, like the, the rest of the world eventually gets gets its shit together and like and it's just like a real emergency where the situation changes. One of the first recording or one of the first broadcasts I listened to is advising everybody to barricade themselves in their homes. Then like a half hour later, okay, we've updated it. There's these emergency shelters set up in every county. You here's a list of your shelter. Get there as fast as possible. We got food, medicine, and guns and ammo. And then, of course, later, you know, we have militias kind of tromping through the county, uh, eliminating the dead. And they kind of realize, oh, yeah, yeah, it's only fresh, the freshly dead getting up and attacking people. We outnumber them. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, off exactly. they go. And, and I like having hunted with good old boys, that's kind of what it's like. It's just a bunch of guys with beer bellies uh, sort of yeah. walking around with firearms, matter of factly. Uh, th- there's something very there's something very real about that moment. Yeah, definitely. And also what I like, too, is that the, like, the sound of the rifle, you know, the, it doesn't really feel like, like a Foley effect. Like, it's got a very quick, concise pop to it. And with, like, a caliber that size, it's, you're not going to have that dirty hair, you know. You're well, I'm just sure, nice, like, you know. I'm, I'm sure it's kind of a limitation of, of the budget and whatever post-production they had access to. And yet it does make the movie more real. The fact that it's using more subdued sounds for its firearms. Right. It's, I gotta give this praise for it. I'm not even sure how they did it. There's a handful of shots where the character, uh, our lead character of Ben, uh, shoots at, at a zombie, and you know he he pulls the trigger. There's the sound. There's the muzzle flash, and the squib goes off in the zombie's back. It is right. so perfectly timed. I don't I, know how yes. they got the timing that perfect. And you see it all in one frame. It's not you know right. barrel muzzle flash squib falling over. It's all in one frame. And there's a few of them too, which is incredibly difficult to time, I, regardless of what show you're shooting on, you know what I mean? Um, and I definitely noticed that. And there's a, there's a lot of obviously great uh, effects and gore work and stuff like that, but that really stuck out to me was how well-timed the, uh, the blood packs and squib work was. Actually, speaking of the, so speaking of the blood, that was another thing that I f- felt was helped with the colorized version. The way they colored the blood so richly red combined with its own natural thickness on screen made the made the blood work very well. Huh. I'll have to check out this colored version because um, it just, it seems like such sacrilege because I just, it's so beholden as like this great black and white movie, you know, and that's part of like what makes it so gritty, but I, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm up for anything. It, it doesn't improve the film as a whole, but those two elements, the zombie skin right. and the blood, those are truly enhanced. Excellent. I mean, I, I could actually, that's something I would like to see. Uh, only colorize the blood. Kind of like right. Sin City or something, yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, so you're talking about like all, all, all these different home video releases. I looked up a review of a DVD talk of uh, the Night of the Living Dead uh, Millennium version, which had a THX-approved transfer uh, from 2000, as you might guess from the name. Uh, it, it said that at that point, that was like the seventh version of Night of the Living Dead released on DVD. And wow. that was a somewhat official release. You know, that wasn't one of these like, box sets where it's like 30 zombie movies for five dollars uh and uh, there's a particularly interesting version of the film that george romero hated called night of the living dead 30th anniversary edition i've heard uh, he didn't like that one yeah the have you heard of this alex so it's got to be what 1998 then 99 something like that yeah 98, 98 99 so the co-writer of the film with romero john a russo who is also a producer on the picture 
uh, filmed additional scenes with kind of about like a crazy preacher and having some kind of religious satire has a new soundtrack in there from Scott Vladimir Lakina. And uh, to give the movie a more modern pace, and uh, even though Romero knew he he couldn't stop it from happening because of the rights issues, and he didn't want to bag on his friend, he just, you know, basically said, like, I don't like this as polite as possible. Right. He he always seemed like such a mensch to George Romero. Uh Uh-huh. Totally. I recognize um, the cover with the, the the like pop art looking border and the the, the yes. dead chick face. Yeah, yeah. I've never I never saw this, but I'm seeing artwork from it uh, with a footage with the pre on Anton Lavey looking preacher guy. Uh huh. Yeah, this is mm, real. So weird. Very odd. Um. So, with uh, all of this stuff with the Night of the Living Dead, we should probably talk about the plot. We're limited for time on this episode, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Uh. So you know you start with the the beginning with the the couple and they get killed in the graveyard and then uh, or not not, sorry the the man gets killed and johnny woman johnny gets killed Yeah, the brother and sister who are making a three-hour drive outside of pittsburgh to lay to lay a wreath on their father's grave and johnny is is the kind of guy that complains about the time it takes to drive to a graveyard well, he also, like, he's, he's a bit of a, a prankster, and, and it's endearing, because you can tell he doesn't mean any harm, he's just a bit of a scamp, but you can also yeah. tell that he has, his sister Barbara has, like, just, there's just a history of people in his family not liking it, and he has, even has this story about how they were out there in the cemetery with their grandfather, and he, like, jumped out of a bush to scare, to scare Barbara, and <laughs> I like the way he put it, and then grandfather shook his fist at me and said, boy, you'll be damned to hell! <laughs> it almost sounds like... He- a Mel Brook imitation or something. It, it sounds like right. he's recounting a real story. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it does sound authentic. And I think the reason why I said couple is I've been watching so much Game of Thrones lately with all the incest <laughs> in that show. It's scrambled my go. brain. But, you know, so so Barbara is in this catatonic state and, and she can't talk. But she finds this farmhouse uh, that she goes in. And in uh, short order, there there's a man already in there named, uh, named Ben who's uh, played by Dwayne Jones. Jones. And, you know, the part was not meant to be cast as a black actor. Just having a, a black person in the lead of a, of a horror film and having them survive, but also just in the lead of a film uh, in general that's not like a black exploitation movie is pretty radical for 1968. Yes, my, my understanding, the whole reason he got the part is, like, he auditioned and he just had the strongest audition. And he that's is right, yeah, it was, not, that. it was not written uh, for yeah, the race. He... He he would always claim that it was colorblind casting, but like George Romero has got such a mm. he has such an advocate mind. I can't. He I, knows what I, he's I would, doing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like I, I buy it tangentially that it was colorblind casting. But I think there's a little, a little subtext, you know. And it, I think there's a slight. It definitely tension. gives the ending a hell of a punch with the Jesus Christ. Oh, but, yeah. oh yeah. We'll, we'll yeah. get to that ending. We will. Yes. We will. Uh, so I mean, you, you get these different characters that come in the house and in, in a way it's kind of a kind of like the alamo in that it, they're under siege uh but but also they argue with each other well speaking of other people in the house like halfway through it turns out there's a married couple whose marriage is on the rocks their bitten daughter and two of their yeah, friends also right. like they had been hiding out in the basement the whole time the whole time uh-huh. and i like to even call what you mean to tell me you were down there the whole time? You heard what was going on? Well, how are we to know that yeah. the house wasn't overrun? Maybe that's what we were hearing. Wait a minute. 
You said you couldn't hear anything. Now you're saying you could? Like, right. A, you see all these holes coming up in Harry's, um, Harry's line of reasoning. And this guy is, like, in horror movie lore, the easiest guy to hate. Like, yes. he is, he is, it's so easy to hate him. And he looks like such a jackass. And he acts like such a jackwagon. Like, well, his wife sums it up perfectly. You just have to be right. Exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, and a. And, and, and the what's amazing thing for this guy is having a black man tell him what to do. <laughs> and what's amazing yes. is his hubris <laughs> doesn't cause that many problems. It's dumb luck that causes most of the problems in this film. And that's that's something I love. They no one has the idiot ball in this movie. People just try to do things under desperate circumstances, and it just very often goes wrong. Right. And while you know he's like you know the basement's the place to be. The basement's the safest place. And like. You're like, oh, us as we as a viewer, we're like, no, that's a terrible idea. But like, then again, we didn't, we didn't, we don't know their story. Maybe again, they're getting chased, and they just saw a house, ran right in the basement, closed the door. Hey, we're safe. You know that 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 was their haven for that moment. You know what I mean? And, and like everybody gets their story, kind of everybody sort of recounts their prelude. Barbara keeps drifting in and out of her catatonic state, yeah, uh, and has some amazing line reads. Like, yes, no, let's go to the basement. Like. Right, just the way she's she's cracking up, and you know, and then eventually they said, "Well, well, you know, we've got that pickup truck. You know, all we need is gas, and there's that gas pump. Well, I found the key to the gas pump, and you know, they they make their run, but um, I think it's it's Tom's girlfriend, I think Judy. Uh, yeah, she's supposed to stay indoors, but she panics and like halfway through the mission, runs out of the door to sort of join them. Uh, they they get to the they get to the pump. They're in such a hurry that uh, that. You know, they, they, they're the, the truck is parked too far from the, the gas pump and gas gets everywhere. And then it gets too near a torch that got carelessly left down right. while they're trying to jigger the lock open, which they end up shooting the lock off, which that's okay. That's a dumb move, but that doesn't right. get them killed. And then, it just, you know, it starts a fire and that's how Tom and his girlfriend ended up dying. They just get in the flaming truck and drive away and eventually the fire reaches <laughs> the gas tank and kaboom. Oh, and, and also, it, like, it's funny because... um. When the, you know you see the truck, when you, you can tell the truck's gonna blow up, and you see the flash against um, Ben's face, and for a second you're like, oh, they're probably just showing the flash to save budget. But then no, it cuts to an exploding truck, and it's a good explosion, <laughs> mind you. You know, and again, this is an effect. They blew up a truck, <laughs> and, and and that means John has seen two vehicles blow up in one day. Like their their death is an echo yeah. of, or sorry, Ben Ben sees it. That's a that's an echo of Ben's whole prelude where he talks about seeing the gas truck driving yeah. by the gas station, covered in zombies and on fire. Bad luck with gas, this guy, man. Oof. Right. Uh, you know, speaking of gas, I mean, the movie is just just cooking with gas. The pacing is really good. This movie is a really tight movie. With, it doesn't uh, stop. Oh, yeah. A very sort of modern, I think, sensibility to editing, not not with make Michael Bay style frame fucking, but it <laughs> it, it has, it, you know, it, it makes a cut when it needs to. It makes sense. It's not just a bunch of wide shots. It doesn't right. look like a Charles Band picture. There's some really it's good very, Dutch angles, too. Yeah, good no. Dutch ang- angles. It's very, um, very verite and um, very economical in its cutting. And what I like, what I really admire, too, is that there's a lot of scenes where you see the actor's entire body head to toe, which is something you didn't really see a lot. There was always a lot of very mm. deliberate blocking. You know, if someone's in the foreground, if someone's a little shorter, put them in the foreground, you know, put the taller person in the background. And with this, it's just very, it enhances the realism because it's very matter-of-fact, unadorned shooting style, which was something that Romero retained through his career. You know, it wasn't a, 
it wasn't just uh, you know it wasn't just happened to be that way it just was it's a deliberate choice and it works yeah, I mean, Romero's not the guy you go to for fancy camera moves because you don't always yeah, he's, need him. Yeah, he's not Kubrick, you know. No, yeah, he's not Kubrick. He's not um, Harmony Corinne. He's not, yeah. Right. He, and you mentioned, you know, earlier Thrasher, the plot where there's a lot of, we have to get this item to go do this. It struck me as very video gamey, even though this came out in 1968 before there were video games. But it, <laughs> I, I was thinking of the old, like, uh, we've been we've been playing the old King's Quest games and stuff like that, and... It's like, oh, I gotta find the hidden key and use it to open the door and start the start the car to give the guy a sandwich or whatever. You know, it's this very kind of checklisty kind of thing, and yet it's all practical. It makes sense. You don't have like, uh, oh, we got the magic gun with the magic bullets in the basement. Let's use that to kill all the right. zombies and win the. No day. one has a machine gun with them or anything like that. You know, they have an old rifle, which you'd something you'd probably find in old farmhouses. <laughs> you probably would find a, an old rifle, and. Um, yeah, there's no there's no do X machine gun. Yeah, exactly. There's um, and the thing too is that like you know now with context, you know we see the girl, we see that she's bit, we're automatically like, oh yeah, like this is just a ticking time bomb. Well, whereas you know, first run of this movie you might not put that together. You might just say like, oh, like she got bit, whatever. Who knows how these people are becoming reanimated, and um, and then of course that leads up to the one of the film's best or most, uh, you know, renowned scenes is when she, when she comes back to life or comes back from the dead and chisels her parents away with a, looks like a gardening. It's a masonry trowel. trowel. Mm. Yes. Yeah. And it's a great scene and it's got this great, like psychedelic music to it. It's got this weird twangy echo kind of like with the stabbing motions. It's like, da, 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 da. it's got a lot of like reverb. Um, well, you know, this, this soundtrack it's it's very sort of theremin, very synth sounding, and it reminds me at many points, especially when there's that weird artificial heartbeat on the track, that very much reminds me of the music from Forbidden Planet. Yeah, it was because um, Forbidden Planet was like the first like electronic score, right? Yeah, the first fully electronic score for for a feature film. Oh, do you know how they scored Night of the Living Dead? Uh no, no, no was um you know obviously it's a low budget production so what he did was that you could go to like a library and Capitol records had like music for movies basically like very generic stock and you grab like you know like there's tracks called like freaky scene or like weirdo you know what i mean like um like supernatural suspense and yeah he basically just checked out a few vinyl records and used that because it was cheaper than obviously you know getting an orchestra huh. together to compose it so it was like stock music basically now, see, now I want to see whether any Not of the Living Dead, or not, I'm sorry, any Forbidden Planet sounds ended up in this. I want to look up that movie, the, that music, because presumably it all still exists. Yeah, definitely. And there There's, was a soundtrack uh, release. Oh, okay, yeah. Several years after the fact, but yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, the, the score in this, it, for my taste, is a bit bombastic, but I, mm-hmm. I have to try and put myself at the time in 1968. You did have a lot of these bum 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 yeah. scores, like kind of the Mickey Mousing scores. Uh, and oh, speaking of scores, yeah, I I found some other uses of this movie. So the opening, the opening music that where where we see Barbara and Tom's car on the road, that originally was used in an episode of Ben Casey called "I Remember a Lemon Tree," uh, and was reused in the Naked City. 
Uh, and then it was also used in Teenagers from Outer Space. And I think that's where I've heard it before. I've seen mm-hmm. Teenagers from Outer Space too many times. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the um, God, when, when I was a teenager, I spent... Even though there was the internet, I wasn't as good as Googling as I was na- am now, and like there was less stuff on there. I was trying to find the score to Quentin Tarantino's Jackie Brown, mm-hmm. and it turns out Jackie Brown's score is not an original score composed for the movie. It's just lifted from, I think, Coffee. Uh, yeah, Tar- Tarantino uh, does that a lot. Yeah. Uh, right, but the entire score is, I mean, that's quite unusual. It's not just right. a, a segment. Just like in Hateful Eight, the opening piece of music is... Uh, Laura, right. no, uh, Laura's theme from The Exorcist Two: The Heretic. Okay. Another Ennio Marconi. The yeah, theme yeah from, true. The theme from Death Proof is the theme from uh, Village of the Giants, an MST3K classic, but with the horns oh, okay. uh, uh, enhanced on the soundtrack. That's Excellent. Funny. There's, uh, scummy. So there's um a scene with the the. The daughter, uh, you know, comes back to life and, and kills her mother. What do you guys think of that? Because that's often cited as like one of the scariest scenes in the movie. I mean, the thing I like about it is that you've almost forgotten the daughter is down there by the time that happens. But it is just creepy seeing this child creep up on people with murderous intent. It, and I also love that, like, she, we don't see her beforehand. Not like, I'm feeling sick. You know, she's just kind of there. Oh, yeah, she's out of it the whole movie. But Yeah, she, yeah. she's kind of a little moppet. Yeah. Uh... And uh, I feel like that's um, kind of like the thesis of Romero's thing, because he was so he's so disillusioned that like you know peace and love didn't work, and the you know the the counterculture of the late '60s kind of failed, and what you had was just right. a lot of bad shit going down. And it's this like distrust of the older generation, it's this distrust of authority, and it's this distrust mm-hmm. of you know the of the hierarchy of family and and whatnot. And um, I think like. Uh, you know, George Romero is a, a, a positive advocate in so many ways and social, socially and politically. And I think that's when one of the few times where he really feels anger kind of coming out and that this movie has like a, just more bite to it than than any, uh, you know, low budget indie horror film of its time and even, you know, subsequent time. And um, yeah, it's a it's a terrific scene. I think it encapsulates kind of uh, the driving force that put this movie into production. Sure. Um, I mean, for me, the the scene that really we're gonna have to wrap up on this in a second to go to our other segments. But the scene that really stands out for me in the picture is is the, the kind of really kind of gore hound scene where it's these long. The, you see the group of the zombies coming towards the house, eating entrails out of people's bodies. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it's someone like ripping something from a tree. I think that's a pretty good close up. And it's just. You get that sense of scale, even though it's it was a low budget film and you didn't um, have that many actors and stuff to work with. I don't know how long it took him to shoot that sequence, probably a few days. Um, it is just you get just a bigger sense of how this is affecting everyone. Like mainly the plot is through the radio or the TV station news clips uh, right. of, of the world building. But this that you see like, oh, wow, this is really like we're in big trouble here. Like with, with the guns and stuff, we got some. Uh, uh, people that know how to use them, we, we'll be okay. And then it's like, right. oh, and then it becomes almost Lovecraftian in a sense. It's like, oh no, we're fucked. Yeah. <laughs> no, Thrasher, no, this, what, this, this what's your favorite is scene in the picture? I, Sorry. Oh, uh, yeah, so we'll wrap up on there, that. There's a lot of, I have a, a lot of favorite scenes. That being said, something that I've always felt is really effective. So after, this is, it's, th- these are the most effective closing credits I've ever seen. 
Because after oh, yeah. the, the mm-hmm. end, I, we will discuss the end, yep. the closing yes. credits play over still shots of bodies being dragged out of houses, heaped into yeah. piles, and burned. Sure. And in fact, the final shot is we just see a full pile of bodies uh, uh, with the clothes of one particular character sticking out of them uh, set alight. And the moment you see those pictures, it's as if you are looking at the historical document of the real event this movie was based on. Like, we know it's not based on true events, but there's something so raw and real about that. For a split second, it makes you think, wait, did this really happen? Are these the photos of the real thing? And and it also also just speaks to some of the most disturbing photos that came out of of World War II and and Vietnam. Yeah, it was... um... Just truly chilling the way these bodies are the way these bodies are getting disposed of. It's terrifying, and like you said, the the film in itself like doesn't entirely feel scary, but that ending and it's like it's what I refer to. I guess it's a little existential, but it's like this loneliness of of murder that makes it so. You know, you have this guy you've been you know you know uh, cl- clung to this whole narrative, and then you know just bang thump he's gone. Cut, yeah, yeah in the end, like. Ben is the only person alive. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. And then you just, um, you know, they can't even touch them. They're 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 grabbing with hooks, and and then it just evokes these terrifying images of like you know of like the segregated South and you know like burnings and lynchings and shit like that of you know the true atrocities and you know at the end it's like well even though this is Pennsylvania, which I believe was 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 with the with the Union during the Civil War, right, right. And, um, but the thing is like at the end, you see like these militia guys and stuff with, with guns and you're like, Oh, like these asshole guys, like, I'm like, these guys are the, like, these guys win, these guys are the victors, you know? And then these guys save the day. And then, um, you know, once, uh, Ben gets shot, you're like, Oh shit. Like no one, no one wins. You know what I yeah, mean? Like, yeah. And all Ben is doing, cause like Ben's been trapped in the basement all night, Ben like all Ben is doing is just kind of peering through a crack in the boarded up windows just to see if it's really a rescue party. And the rescue party is just sort of so desensitized and used to putting down zombies. They see any movement in the house. Oh, must be a zombie. Bang. Right. And it's, and it's that sort of carelessness and disinterestedness. Like they're not, they're not even looking for survivors at no point are they shouting out, you know, Hey, rescue party. They're just doing a mop up job. And it's that, and it's that, it's that carelessness and that desensitization that leads to Ben's death. And also after Ben's senseless and unnecessary death. Mm-hmm. And after Ben's death, there's no photograph of someone being like, oh, my God, I shot a human, not like a zombie. You know what I mean? No one, no one's like, oh, shit, I, I fucked up. I, I killed a person. Yeah, no one <laughs> you knows. Know, they, yeah, they just throw him right in the fire, you know? Yeah. No one took the time to be like, oh, he looks pretty fresh. There's no bite marks or anything like that, you know? Well, it's even like what the sheriff says. Like, okay, that's another one for the fire. Let's get going. Yep. It's, uh, oh, it's but- chilling. Oh, but that final zombie assault where everyone but Ben dies, I do love that Barbara's brother is one of the zombies. He was always yeah. making a yeah, deal yeah. driving gloves. So even when he's disheveled and rotting, he's still got the driving gloves on and right. you can tell it's him. Oh, and you can see point. him uh, filling with them in the beginning, you know, because you know it's going to pay off uh, later. Set up and pay off. That's how you do a traditional three-act structure. And they do Good come stuff. to get Barbara. There that, we go. Yeah, yeah. I never thought true. of that, but you're, you're, they got you, Barbara. Uh, <laughs> Night of the Living Dead. Yeah, I would say unqualified sequel. Yes, this is a, a stone cold classic, uh, not just in the horror genre, but in film in general. Um, it you watch, watching this in the middle of a at this time of recording where it's COVID nineteen and you have um, 
quite a lot of things going on in the news, uh, it, it really made the ending especially hit especially hard. But um, yeah, watch it. Uh, watch watch it with the kids. It's a good first horror picture. <laughs> Yeah, I'm definitely, I'm definitely giving it a, a sequel, yes. There's a reason why this film has persisted beyond the fact that it was easy to distribute without copyright. <laughs> um, unequivocal sequel, yes, definitely. And um, it's funny because over time, over the years, I never forget what, I never forget that this is a great movie, but every time I go to rewatch it, it's like, I'm like, wow, this is such a fucking phenomenal flick. Um, unequivocal sequel, yes. And uh, it's an important movie. George is an important dude. And yeah. So in 1999, it was entered into the Library of Congress's National Film Registry, and it part like I want to look into that because I'm wondering what version did they put in there? Right, <laughs> maybe the colorized one. In this quarter on the Greenlit Podcast Network, Chris Sims and Matt Wilson, and in this quarter, VHS oddities, confusing animation, and modern not so classics. Plus snacks, movie fighters. We watch movies and beat them up. The award-winning Go Nintendo podcast covers the latest Nintendo news while also diving into what's hot in pop culture, music trivia, hands-on impressions, and so much more. Hopefully we can make you laugh, too. You'll find new episodes of the Go Nintendo podcast on the Greenlit Podcast Network every single week. Hopefully it's it's a high-quality print of the original version, but, you know, like, it, like it's, it's earned its position. It has earned its position in the history of horror and film in general. Is there still a national film registry anymore, or oh yeah, you know, kind of archiving thing? Okay, I don't know if that got defunded. Um, I mean, I mean, I'm I'm sure its funding is constantly under threat, but it is still going. Mm-hmm. Yeah, great. Uh, okay, well, since we're let's do uh, pitch a sequel than the sequel scene because we're kind of pressed for time here. Um, pitch a sequel. It's difficult to. Okay, go go Thrasher. All right, so so mine is going to be Trial of the Living Dead. So I want to do uh, it's going to be a sequel to the Living Dead with pretty much no zombies. And the whole and the whole premise is uh, it takes place like a few weeks, maybe a few months after the events of the movie, and people are suddenly aware that some innocent living people got shot. And so the whole idea is the guy who shot Ben. It's it's just a it's a trial. And uh, the guy who shot Ben is put on trial for murder. And we just see beat by beat the legal proceedings of, you know, how, like, what, you know, what happens, what happens after this kind of disaster where, where a crime was committed? How, how are people tried? Are there, are there witnesses? What's the evidence like? You know, it's, it's, it's just something that, that has, I've, I've always wondered if, if, someone were to know that Ben was alive in that moment, what kind of charge could you lay on the person who shot him? You know, how would that person react? Would they plead innocent? Would they plead guilty? Would people point out that, no, you know, is it is it manslaughter due to carelessness? I feel like there's a legal drama waiting to happen in the aftermath of this film, and it's one I would very much like to see. Exactly, because, you know, would it be manslaughter? Would it be, you know, criminally mm. negligent homicide? There's a lot of There's a lot of space there, yeah. Sure. I, I would say uh, if I was to pitch a sequel to this, um, you would it would pick up right where the first movie ends. They would probably replay kind of a, a quicker cut version of, uh, of Ben getting shot. And then you would follow um, what happens to uh, to to his body. And through some contrivances, he would become a zombie. Maybe you'd have to change a bit of what happened at the end of Night of the Living Dead. I think you'd have to retcon some things. But 
he becomes a zombie, but yet he still has his humanity. It would be played by Dwayne Jones. We're assuming it would be made in the late early 70s at this point. And it would be sort of a kind of play, I think, more on the tragic angles. It would also take a page from RoboCop, have him trying to go back to his family. And but he's a zombie. And and how do you reckon with that? And yeah. at and it would be called uh, Ben of the Living Dead. Very nice. Um, my pitch is sequel. I'll, I'll keep it quick. Um, yep. Turns out Ben got shot in the head. However, the bullet didn't really penetrate his skull. So he's shot in the head. He's rendered mm. unconscious. But he's not dead. But however, since he's you know compromised, he's um, he he comes back to life. Scares the shit out of the dudes who you know dragged him towards the towards the fire. And uh, comes back to life, exacts his revenge, you know, pulls some, you know, Rambo shit, you know, disarms him, takes their guns, wipes him out. Now he's on the run, and then you have other militias tailing him, and now it's a super badass first blood scenario called uh, Night of the Living Ben. Hmm. Same title? Night of the Living Ben. Ben? Oh, oh, I see. Yeah. Yes, because nice. he's living. Ah, very good. <laughs> Right, so let's do uh, the sequel scene. Do you want to set up the scene, Thrasher? It seems like kind of a longer one. Uh, yeah, so this is... Uh, let me see here. So this this is uh, shortly after uh, the Coopers have emerged from the basement. So this is uh, this is Ben and the Coopers like, like having their argument about you. About you mean to tell me you've been down there the whole time? Okay, so who wants to play who? I'll do Ben. I'll, I'll be Harry. I'll be the. Dick. I'll be Tom. All right, so, how long have you guys been down there? I could have used some help up here. That's the cellar. That's the safest place. You mean you didn't hear the racket I was making up here? How are we supposed to know what's going on? It could have been those things for all we know. That girl was screaming. Surely you know what a girl screaming sounds like. Those things don't make any noise. Anybody would know somebody needed help. Look, it's kind of hard to know what's going on from down there. We thought we could hear her screams, but for all we know, that meant those that meant those things were in the house after her. And you wouldn't come up here and help? Well, if, if there were more of us. That racket sounded like the place was being ripped apart. How are we supposed to know what was going on? No, no, wait a minute. You just got finished saying you couldn't hear anything from down there, and now you say it sounded like the place was being ripped apart. It would be nice if you got your story straight, man. All right, now you tell me. I'm not going to take that kind of chance when we've got a safe place. We lock up into a safe place, and now you're telling us that we got to come up here and risk our lives just because someone might need help, huh? Yeah, yeah, something like that. <laughs> End scene. Wow, that, that was a... Uh, I think uh, Dwayne Jones has a, a run for his money. <laughs> <laughs> no, he, no, he doesn't. You cannot replace Ben Jones. Or Dwayne Jones. Dwayne Jones. Dwayne Jones yeah. as Ben. That's true. It's, I accidentally called him Dwayne Johnson a few times. That would be a very uh, different movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Although, if you were doing casting, that wouldn't be a bad choice, necessarily. No, you sure? Modern, so. modern day remake. Um, and this is uh, one thing interesting. I mean, he uh, became the director of the McGuire Theater at State University of New York at Old Westbury. And uh, also the artistic director of the Richard Allen Center for Culture and Art in Manhattan. So, you know, he was in the theater for, uh, in his life until the end. And then he acted in some films like, uh, like Ganja and has like not, nothing that became 
as big as Night of the Living Dead, yeah. and people still just recognized him as that dude from Night of the Living Dead as Ben. That's either yeah. got to be great or nerve-wracking. Right, uh, yeah, it depends. A little bit of both. I mean, along those lines, I remember a quote from uh, Mark Hamill when he was especially resentful about Star Wars, and he said, it doesn't, ma- it doesn't matter what I do, uh, because at the end of the day, Lucasfilm is stamped on my ass. <laughs> well, that's the thing. I feel like fan culture on horror movies is probably slightly less annoying than fan culture on something like Star Wars. Well, I feel like like anytime he's teaching a class, he would just be, okay, i got to get this out of the way. Yes, I was Ben in Night of the Living right. Dead. <laughs> get your questions out now. We've got 15 minutes, and then we're never going to talk about this again. Right. <laughs> yeah, so... Um... Actually, we wrap that up quicker than I thought. Why don't we do things out of order and end on what you're watching? Uh, (laughs) I was watching this um, documentary uh, executive produced by Jordan Peele. Uh, It's a documentary series. It's kind of the thing that's in vogue now on Amazon Prime called Lorena about Lorena Bobbitt. Okay. And they talked to Lorena Bobbitt. They talked to John Bobbitt, her former husband. Um, I believe they were married. Um, and, and there, there was, I learned a lot. I think it's a bit tongue in cheek. It's funny. It's sad. It's, uh, where the, the thing that blows my mind. Uh, so when, uh, the Bobbitt case happened, it was the year before OJ Simpson. Yeah. 95, 94, 95. Nine, uh, I think even earlier. Come on, you asshole. So they were married in 1989, 93. So that was 93. Okay. OJ Simpson was 94. So I would have been, um, God, like fourth grade probably when yeah. fourth or fifth grade when this went on. But um, I actually lived in the city that Lorena Bobbitt worked in as a nail stylist, Centerville, Virginia. But they lived in Manassas. Um, and I believe that's sort of, is that kind of around your neck of the woods, Thrasher, or no? I, no, I think... You're I don't think Southern that's... in Virginia? Because I thought you grew up in Virginia. Or am well, I, I, I grew up in, in Norfolk, Virginia. That's right on Norfolk. the coast. I okay. think that's further yeah. inland. Further inland. That's Yeah, it is further inland. And I mean, uh, Centerville and Manassas is more metro D.C. Uh, an hour or two away from D.C. Maybe 90 minutes from D.C. Terrible traffic. Um, but yeah, it's... And uh, as um, some people are pointing out on Twitter, they made the funny point that they interview a lot of cops for this documentary. Like the whole first episode is about the night that it happened and talking to the police, mm-hmm. talking to the, uh, the the microsurgeon that did the reattachment of um, John Bobbitt's penis. And, and, and you see these super conservative cops trying to tap dance around and not say the word penis, <laughs> both in vintage audio from the time and in new interviews. <laughs> and and there's a, a photo of the cop uh just on there he you know they had to find the the penis within a certain amount of time to reattach it and um they they find it in this grassy field across the street from the 7-eleven and the cop who found it uh points at it with his foot and points down at it with his hand and because he's so religious he says it's against my religion i'm not going to pick up this penis this evidence <laughs> And they proceeded to take it to the 7-Eleven, um, put it in a spare, empty hot dog bag, and put it on ice. They just filled it with filled it with Slurpee. <laughs> yeah, yeah, filled it with uh, 
with razzle dazzle blueberry <laughs> and, uh, to, to keep it to keep it on ice ice give it a bit of a zing um so but i i would recommend it it's they also get into serious stuff too about like uh it, and i didn't i didn't know this because i was a kid when this happened lorena bobbitt was was raped a lot by john bobbitt and then going into that so there's uh, right and that's the thing too is that they always yeah. painted her as like the crazy lady but like yeah john bobbitt was a piece of shit who like beat yep. his wife a lot so um yeah, yes much uh but I, yeah, I'd recommend Lorena on Amazon Prime. Uh, Alex, what have you been watching? Um, recent thing I watched was um, Capone, and I think oh, hey, the Tom um, show. Yeah, Josh Gad. Like, like Jesus, uh, Josh Trank. Trank. And I'm like, oh, you know, I love gangster movies. Um, Tom Hardy always does something interesting. I'll check this out. Um, I was not a fan, and it's about it's uh, in a nutshell. It's about like his end of life. You know, he's on the desk door. And he's hallucinating about all his past exploits and crimes and what have you. And the thing is, is that um, anyone who's ever lost anyone or has been around that happening, um, end of life stuff is very unpleasant. <laughs> it's a lot of, you mm. know, defecating in your bed and not remembering who your loved ones are. And it's very, you know, sad and depressing stuff. And it's a, it's a, it's a huge misfire of a movie. And, Afterwards, I looked up like reviews, and the amount of like like sympathy and support for Josh Trank really surprises me, because it's like everyone's waiting for this like great Josh Trank movie, and I just don't feel like it's gonna happen. Um, like a, a lot of people like Chronicle, I didn't. Um, I know Fant Fortstick wasn't. I wasn't a big fan of that either. And what else is there? Um, Fantastic Four. Yeah, yeah, Fantastic Four, Fan Fortstick, I always call it. Oh. Um, yeah. In Chronicle, I wasn't wild about, and then this, and they're like, you know, this, like, Josh Trank is, like, gonna, you know, really make this comeback, and I'm like, I don't know, I mean, more power to him if he, if, if he does make this great movie, but everyone's waiting for it, but well, I don't recall know if that Josh, Recall that Josh Trank got, originally was one of the three people to get a gig uh, for a Star Wars spinoff movie. Oh, that's and then, right. And then after Fantastic, he, uh, apparently on Fantastic Four, uh, w- was not pleasant to be around and okay. totally trashed the shit out of his house that he stayed at while he was filming the show and was basically more or less fired. I mean, the whole third act was like filmed by someone else. A lot of reshoot. I mean, that movie had problems, oh, wow. but he was basically in Hollywood jail <laughs> as they say. Uh, Interesting. So, I mean, I, I agree. I'm a bit surprised by his supporters, but the, um, I, I don't know. We'll see. He, interestingly enough, you know, he got to start doing quite a lot of editing on, on especially yeah. on, on one picture I really like called uh, Big Fan. I think it's the one with Patton Oswald mm. and where he's like a stalker of um, kind of a king of comedy kind of kind of show. OK, yeah, uh, I haven't right. seen it in a while. It's, it came out maybe 10. You're familiar with that Thrasher came out maybe 10 years ago. I, I know years ago. of it, and I love Patton Oswalt, but I still have not seen it. Yeah, it's a dark, uh, darkly comedic performance. Quite good. Um, so, Thrasher, what's something you've been watching? So, I watched the uh, 1968... I'm sorry, not 1968, that's the wrong one. I, I watched the uh, 1982 Hong Kong martial arts film uh, uh, produ- uh, produced by Shaw Brothers, directed by Chang She, uh, with screenplay by Chang She and Nai Kurong, uh, The Five Elements Ninjas. 
like this air, is everything wind, I water, like water. like elements. You mean like air, wind, water, fire? Uh air. Uh the let me see. I remember correctly that yeah, they defined it as like uh, uh, it was it was earth, air, water, fire, and wood. Uh and damned if this was not. Oh no, no, I'm sorry. No, it wasn't. Uh, it wasn't air. It was metal. Metal was the the other one, if I remember correctly. Okay. But it was everything I wanted in a martial arts film. There's this, you know, there are these feuding martial arts schools getting ready for a tournament, and the leader of one of the martial or the master of one of the martial arts schools realizes that his team is going to lose because they're outclassed by this other martial arts master. So he hires some ninjas to us uh, to assassinate that martial arts master. Um, they fail, but a lot of the students die and the master gets poisoned and is going to have to like focus his chi for six months to clear the poison out of his system. So he can't be there for the martial arts tournament. So one of his surviving pupils turns out, that scheme works so well, the guy has been using the ninja mercenaries to kill off other rivals. So he looks for the survivors of these other martial arts schools to band them together and learn their own secret martial arts to defeat the ninjas. But of course, the, the leader of the ninja mercenaries, like we know, this works so well, we're just going to take over your martial arts school, and then we're going to take over all the martial arts schools. Um, and... There's this great bit where uh, one of the one of where we see all the pupils, die because they go to the different martial arts like lairs to face the ninjas and they die horribly but then to the climax of the film the survivors who have banded together and have learned these secret techniques from a retired ninja who went straight they go back to all those lairs and have rematches with those elemental ninjas and we see how they're defeated and like every ninja has gimmicks uh, uh, like, like, like the, uh, like the earth ninjas keep like bursting out of the ground and like tunneling and like the wood ninjas keep disguising themselves as trees. Uh, the fire ninjas are of course like shooting fireworks from these bamboo cannons. It, it, it is so good. And there's of course a love story because there's a, a woman who gets rescued and taken, given shelter in the martial arts dojo. Uh, but then it turns out she's actually a ninja spy sent to infiltrate them and learn their plans. Uh, and she, she ends up dying, but you know, she, she has her, her heroic moment of redemption. This was great. Five elements. Ninjas is everything you want in a Shaw brothers movie. Yeah. I was mm. so glad you mentioned it. Cause uh, that's a, the, the later era Shaw Brothers stuff, like in the early 80s, like Bastard Swordsman and like the weird trio. You get so many great movies at that point. And they're just like really off the wall. And it's a, a great prelude to like the Choi Hark, uh, super crazy Wuxia stuff. Um, yeah, no, I was so happy you mentioned that. <laughs> I love that movie. Well, there you go. I'll have to check that. I, I have such a big gap with the Asian cinema apart from, oh, some early anime from the late 90s and... Uh, I don't know, Satoshi Kon or uh, Kurosawa mm. and Jackie Chan. Yeah. But other than that, there's a whole lot I haven't seen. And it's like a whole nother. Oh, there's, and there's so much. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they really knock them out. I mean, I, I read something about the Jackie Chan pictures where the reason why the tone jumps all over the place, and it's true of a lot of um, Asian movies as well from a certain period, is because when the director would, would show up for a, a scene, they're like, okay, we're doing real one. This will be a comedy reel. And then tomorrow we're going to do real, like a lot of them, they're just kind of like riffing on the set. Like it's not a real strict, right. uh, you must follow the script, every line, you know, dialogue. Right. Or sometimes they just kind of forget what kind of movie they're doing. <laughs> it just kind of mm -hmm. falls into, you know, when you have so many grinding, when you grind out so many movies. And like, I try to fancy myself as like a, something of a completist. And it's like, I've, 
scratched the surface, you know? Like, my mountain of Hong Kong DVDs, it's like, pff, nothing. It's a drop in the water. <laughs> right, fantastic. Uh, so, um, yeah, let, let's all plug something. I will, uh, you can go to my Twitter, at M-A-T-W-B-T. Uh, I've been doing some writing lately for film inquiry. Uh, I recently reviewed a documentary, Netflix versus the World, uh, which, bad title, it's really more about Netflix and Blockbuster Video. And at one point, Blockbuster Video had the chance to buy out Netflix for, uh, you know, like $35 million. And Netflix was looking to sell, and that's what they offered Blockbuster, and Blockbuster executives laughed in their face. So, history is a funny thing. Uh, Thrasher. Uh, see, uh, nothing uh, new to plug, although uh, if you didn't get a chance to buy into the Fading Suns Pax Alexius Kickstarter, they now have that feature going where you can still pre-order the books. I believe that's still being done through Kickstarter. So you can, oh, okay. you can still sign oh. up for some of the rewards if you didn't get them during the Kickstarter. So again, you will be seeing some of my, uh, some of my writing in there, um, particularly in the Reeve source book and the Charioteers source book, which I believe you can also get with that pre-order. And it, it, I'm assuming on different tiers you get different bundles of books. Oh yeah, yeah. There's, there's you can get just the core books. You can get the core books and the supplements. I think there's some other supplements that have been announced. I think there's an intrigue. There's like an intrigues and adventure book that I think got added uh, at some point. But when's the estimated release of the actual uh, hard copy of the product? That I actually don't know. I, I think because I think the original plan was around the time of Gen Con, but Gen Con's not happening this year. The announcement came out a few days ago as of this recording that Gen Con will be, has been canceled for the year. Um, so I suspect it will take a little bit longer, if only because without having Gen Con to worry about, we can put more time into polishing polishing the work, doing uh, polishing the layout and graphic design. Uh, yeah, that stuff always takes longer than anyone thinks it does. And uh, I mean, with COVID, that's just delayed so much of the publishing schedules. Um, among other more terrible problems. Uh, Alex. Um, you can find me at Twitter, um, at, uh, Crab Nebula 1914 And also, if you like uh, cool, weird, um, off-the-wall Asian movie stuff, you can check out my YouTube channel, The Trailer Project. A lot of trailer commentaries for a myriad of movies all around the globe. Uh, latest one was a trailer commentary for Coriata's 2016 film, After the Storm. So, yeah, check it out. There's a lot of fun, crazy stuff there. Interestingly enough, uh, Uwe Boll did a movie with a similar title, The Final Storm. Oh, yes. That stars, oh, what the hell, the woman from Dumb and Dumber. Uh, I can't place her name. Oh, I think the redhead lady. Yeah, and Luke Perry was also in it. Okay. And it, it, it's a eco-domestic thriller. Excellent. I, I don't know if I'd call it excellent, but it's it's something. Um, all right. Well, uh, you know, follow us on Twitter at SequelCast2. Leave us a five-star review on uh, Apple Podcast, on iTunes, on the app. And um, you can also listen to us on Stitcher at Stitcher.com. And we're now on Spotify. I was looking at our stats, and more people listen to us through Spotify than uh, through any other source, which surprises the heck out of me. Um, so, yeah. Uh, next time, we will be doing... Dawn of the Dead. That's the one in the mall. In the... <laughs> the first one in the mall. Uh, yeah. First of Food, uh, fun, and shopping. The mall has it all. <laughs> I love when the Joe Bob Briggs, they did Shopping Mall as a movie on their recent thing on Shutter. <laughs> yes. What a stupid robot mall movie. Um, Thank you for shopping.
Say a Jim Winorski special, I believe. <laughs> Happy birthday, Polly. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, so uh, for Sequel Cast 2, this is Matt. This is Thrasher. This is Alex. Saying, they are coming to get you, Barbara. Stop it. You're ignorant. Look like this is a night of the living dead. <laughs> the flesh-eating ghouls have been reported across the country. Mash murder I- all across the country. There's a meteor coming down. Uh, it is a team to land in a cornfield. Good luck with it. Good luck with your sequel cast. <laughs>